Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from and what drives them forward. It's no longer about the fashion industry becoming sustainable because we don't have time for that now. It's about if this is one of the most influential industries in the world, how can we use that influence to get the message out that we are in an emergency? You can't change business overnight, but you can change how you use your voice overnight. Sarah Arnold is founder of Hire Studio, a couture, fashion rental and subscription service based in East London. She is also an active member of Extinction Rebellion, who are promoting a fashion boycott, urging people not to buy any new clothes for a whole year. For some context, 100 billion new clothing items are produced each year, which in turn contributes 10% of the global carbon emissions total as well as releasing a huge amount of microfibers and plastic into the ocean. I hope you enjoy her story. Sarah, welcome to Stories of Growth. Very excited to have you on the show um, and hear what you've been up to with Hire Studios. So why don't we just start at the beginning um, and maybe just explain a little bit about uh, what you've been doing with Hire Studios. I studied fashion design um, at Central St. Martin's and I guess I always thought that I was going to have my own brand or as you do when you go to St. Martin's be the next McQueen or you know iconic next iconic designer. Um, Was there was there an expectation for that? I think I had expectations of myself for that kind of thing. And that's your, you come to St. Martin's inspired by those people. Um, and for me in my teenage years, it was McQueen. So that was, that was the kind of what I had in mind. Um, a worthy hero. Yeah. Um, and when I came out of four or five years of studying, um, I thought, okay, well, here we go. Um, And then I thought, okay, well, I need to make the brand sustainable, but I have to produce quantities of clothes and to make the business grow, I need to produce more and more stuff. And do we even need more clothes? And I didn't really have a solution for this dilemma. Um, I mean, the other thing is to produce sustainably. I mean, maybe you shouldn't use loads and loads of fabric, but when Alexander McQueen's your idol, then you know, <laughs> you're thinking like, you know, big dresses and stuff. Um, so had this dilemma, didn't want to compromise. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go to business school. I went to Imperial College and um, thought I should be able to find some kind of solution to this. Um, and this was about 2013, I think. So it, it was circular economy was not really talked about as much as it is now. Um, I ended up writing my dissertation on the circular economy and new business models within this that. This is in Imperial or at St. Martin's? Yeah, Imperial. Um, and thought, okay, well, rental is the way to incentivize the change that we need because we need to be producing things for longevity rather than for obsolescence. Um, and I started looking at what rental companies were out there. Uh, Rent the Runway was not as it looks now. Um, and even though this was a great idea, I couldn't find any clothes that I wanted to rent. So I started asking around, asking my friends, you know, do you look at these companies? Do you want to rent clothes? And would you rent any of these clothes from these companies? And most of them said no. Um, So there seemed to be a big gap in the market. And that's kind of where it began. So Hire 
was born at that moment? Yeah, in a, you know, a real, just in a kind of embryonic way, yes. <laughs> the idea was born. And what, sort of bringing it up to today, and we're in 2014, 2015, when I was created? Uh, I think I had... I kind of registered the business in 2016, but I didn't actually have a website up until April last year. Okay. Yeah. So what was the business before before that? It was really just me and the clothes in my wardrobe and lending it out to friends and at a fee. <laughs> and then I started ringing around my friends who I knew had amazing things in their wardrobes that weren't being used and be like I've got somebody who's going to a wedding next weekend I know you've got that dress I think it would really suit them do you want to rent it to them so like a stylist matchmaker yeah a little bit wardrobe matchmaker (laughs) something like that okay awesome and I mean it still is a bit like that right yeah so that and what was the response um from either side, from the people who you were borrowing their wardrobe to the people who was receiving, who were receiving it? So from the people I was borrowing it from, there's just masses of amazing clothes that are sitting around doing nothing. And at the same time, we're producing, you know, over 100 billion items of clothing a year still. The industry is set to grow by 63% between now and 2030 but we've already got enough clothes. Um, so that, you know, the utilisation of all this stuff definitely had value. Um, and then on the other side, um, I had people who were coming to me and I'm getting them to be like, I'm just like, okay, try this crazy sculptural com dress and they're like, well, I've never tried anything like that before. I've never even seen anything like that before. And I'm like, you might as well just try it. Um, and, you know, just basically you're telling not gonna, people they've got you're nothing not to buy lose. It. Yeah. Uh, if you don't like it, just bring it back to me tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you were kind of giving access to things that people had, you know, the, it's crazy, isn't it, really, that... Uh, there's so many people that love fashion and you see these things on the catwalk, but there's, it's just this really small elite of the population that actually get to touch those things and wear those things. Um, and all that amazing creativity just really goes to waste. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the most rewarding thing was being able to see people explore things that they hadn't explored before Mm. and also changed the way they perceived clothes and perceived themselves so they're becoming more adventurous curious yeah yeah experimental in terms of their style purely because the fact that they've never had that accessible that accessibility before totally that's interesting and what is the business now in terms of your wardrobe plus your yours and your mate's wardrobe like what where where are you at with the business um i mean it's still very kind of what's the word early stages it's still very i'm very hands-on it's still very much like i'm calling this person and calling that person and doing things by hand um which is nice because i can still be like okay i'm going to take the business in a different direction tomorrow and i can do it Mm -hmm. Um, and as I've gone through this personal journey in the last year of um, the IPCC report coming out, the 1.5 degree report coming out and realising how much of an emergency the world is in um, and deciding that I was going to take action and got involved with Extinction Rebellion. And since then, I've kind of evolved the business as my my values have evolved. Um, 
maybe touch on some of those, that evolution of values? I mean, we are in an absolute emergency. I mean, this morning, or was it last night, there's that article that came out saying that we could be a few years away from the Amazon reaching a tipping point. So it becomes from a net carbon sink to a net carbon producer. And once it reaches that tipping point, it inevitably becomes savanna grasslands. Now, that is like really, really scary stuff. Um, and when you really come to terms with that, then you have to go through a process of grieving and realizing that everything that you thought had value doesn't have that value. Um, and then you have to think, well, what does have value? And it's a little bit like somebody telling you you've got a terminal illness in a way when you're like, okay, yes, fashion is a powerful tool for communication, but it doesn't mean the same as it used to mean to me. What does it mean um, now? I think it's that it can be a powerful tool for communication, but it can also be used to deceive us into thinking that that everything's fine and that we're not in a crisis. Um, now with Extinction Rebellion, I've been on the team that have coordinated the protests at London Fashion Week. And that's about saying that it's no longer about the fashion industry becoming sustainable because we don't have time for that now. Um, it's about if this is one of the most influential industries in the world, how can we use that influence to get the message out that we are in an emergency? Um, and the other thing is, you know, I think that we are inevitably going to reach a point where we will struggle for basic resources, particularly food. Um, we're in a really precarious position now. And there are quite a few countries in the world that are already seeing that happen. If you look at the situation in Syria, that was caused by a drought, which meant, I think, two to three million people dropping into extreme poverty and starvation. Um, so, you know, those kind of things, they're not, they're not hitting this country yet, but at some point it is going to affect us and we don't know when. Um, and obviously when we're going to be struggling for basic resources, we're not really going to be thinking about the clothes that we wear in the same way. We're going to be thinking about them as, you know, to keep the rain off you. Keep survival. You. It's going to be survival, yeah. Um, so... Um, so fashion, I still, I still feel it's really important, but it's not the same importance as it used to have. And that transition, evolution, is for you has been in the last twelve months. Yeah, because um, Extinction Rebellion launched on the thirty-first of October. The IPCC one point five degree report. I think it came out. I think it was early October. Um, but you launched higher with an ambition of reducing you know, consumption or certainly wastage in fashion. Yeah. But the Extinction Rebellion, if I'm understanding it right, just really clarified and solidified that, that thinking to a whole other level. Yeah. Um, Shortly after I started the work with Extinction Rebellion, I decided that Hire Studio shouldn't have new clothes. Um, so now everything we have is either archive or it's from brands, but it's their, you know, it's their old stock. Um, or it's stock that was produced not for us, but for something else. And, you know, it's excess stock. Um, 
We do have some pieces that I guess are new, but they're from discarded materials. So the materials aren't new, they're upcycled um, or they're recycled fibres. Uh, with Extinction Rebellion, I'm running a fashion boycott. Um, so my business needs to be in line with what the boycott's saying. So if I may, yeah. from your website, you say, I envisage a future in which no one buys stuff. Mm. Companies retain their creations and provide them for rent as part of the service, retaining 100% accountable for what they offer. This is a path to a zero-waste circular economy and companies would be forced to deal with their consequences. Yeah. So that is a pretty big step on from the original mandate. And what is, what's the response been in terms of who you speak to, uh, who speaks to you, you speak to people? Like, what has what, what the reaction been? It's hard to tell people when, you know, you've got designers who are trying to produce as sustainably as they can. Um, they might be using organic cotton, for example, or um, and they're making all these efforts, but at the same time, you know, we're in an absolute crisis and... Um, we need those efforts to go towards the crisis instead of producing clothes that we don't need. Um, so what I'm saying is that we need to keep the clothes that we already have in circulation and that designers, I guess their job then becomes upcycling those clothes when they are, when they kind of reach the end of their life. Um, and that's a kind of big thing to say to people I mean, when they it's a they... bit bigger than big <laughs> <laughs> if that is their business but completely understandable in terms of a rationale or an impact that they are creating so uh, yeah i can understand how yeah it's it's tough right yeah if... i mean essentially the system is all wrong yeah, right now and exactly. with extinction rebellion we're asking for system change um and like young designers all of them they're all stuck in a system that is wrong and they're trying to survive and i don't put any blame on anyone um but we do need to start dealing with the reality of the situation uh, so when I'm saying, like, we need to stop business as usual and we need to stop producing new things, I understand that people need to carry on for now. But we need to start getting our heads around the fact that we're coming to a point where we need to stop. When is that point? Um, as soon as possible. But we need, we need the government I mean, re re to... Realistically, when, when would that point be? Um, I would say change should have happened yesterday. Um, when you look at the science, it's really quite terrifying. I mean, I just said that the Amazon is like near yeah, yeah. to a tipping point. The Arctic is near to a tipping point. Um, you know, you've got this problem of aerosol particles in the atmosphere from pollution, which is currently cooling us. So even when we do slam on the brakes, we're gonna we're gonna have this abrupt rise in temperature. Um, it's it's just a really really terrible situation that we're in and if we are using land to produce cotton instead of using land for habitats for nature and you know rewilding the land this is kind of it's something that we can't really afford to do anymore mm. not for clothes that we don't need so what, um, would, what would be your uh, you know, direct call to action to the fashion industry. You can't change business overnight, but you can change how you use your voice overnight. Uh, the fashion industry, in a way, it's a culture that is completely out of sync with the zeitgeist, the situ this crisis that we're in. And if... 
we as humanity are really going to deal with it, we need our culture to change so that we're kind of manifesting the crisis in some way. Because otherwise we're just, we're going to stay in this kind of state of denial. Um, so what the fashion industry can do and what it's so good at doing is manifesting the zeitgeist. So it needs to start doing that. Mm. Um, is this also consumer driven in terms of your purchasing power and whether people choose to buy new or buy secondhand or vintage or rental? I, surely that's also part of, a, a part of the other side of this solution. Um, I mean, the change that we need, I think, is not really a change of, like, from one type of business to another. Yes, I mean, it's better to buy secondhand. Um, but that's not going to fix the problem. Um, and I don't think it's about telling consumers to consume differently is telling consumers to wake up to the fact that you have limited power as a consumer, but you have a lot of power as a citizen. Um, What's the difference? I mean, yes, you can vote with your wallet, but if that was going to work and going to save us, it would have worked by now. You know, we've known about climate change for the last 30 years. And um, the change, change in consumer patterns is just not going to happen quick enough. Um, but that with, surely is education, no? In terms of people understanding the impact that they have when they go to H&M versus, you know, renting an item of clothing from a, you know, a hire studio or a, or a rental service. I, I, I don't know. I'm... I, I would, I'm a, always interested in consumer behaviour. You know, and you know, yeah, I mean, it's I both sides, think, right? Yeah. And if you mobilise that in the right way, and yes, the fashion industry has a, has a duty to change as a business, but ultimately it's, it's a citizen or customer, like they're people at the end of the day. And it's their decision as to what they choose to do and how they choose to live and what they choose to buy or not buy or upcycle or recycle. And... I think, you know, both need to happen. I think it's just, I guess, for people listening to this podcast, you know, what can they tangibly do to change their behaviour? And, you know, practical, today, I can do this. And, you know, add those little things up, you know, little things together make a lot of things. So, I don't know, I'm just thinking about it through that lens. Yeah, um, obviously, you know, we, we are in a current a system currently where that is one of the powers that we have and we should use it. Um, but we should also be getting involved in activism. Um, with Extinction Rebellion, we believe we need 1% to 3% of the population mobilised to get our demands into government. Um, our demands are one that the government tell the truth about the climate and ecological emergency and work alongside institutions to communicate the urgency for change. And two is that they act now, which means halting the loss of biodiversity as quickly as possible and getting to net zero carbon by 2025. And the third one is that the government will have a citizens' assembly that decide on climate and ecological justice issues. So that works a little bit like a jury system. It's kind of a more direct form of democracy. So you have a cross-section of society that get to go into a part of the government and get uh, advised by experts and debate and make decisions. How and far have those demands been received, recognised, responded to? So back in April, we had 10 days of direct action mm -hmm. uh, where we blocked 
five iconic sites of London. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. I was there. <laughs> Great. Not for all five days. <laughs> um, so after that, the government did declare a climate and ecological emergency, which is part of our first demand. Um, the point in declaring emergency is that you start telling the truth about that emergency and start the action. And we've seen none of that. So as far as we're concerned, that first demand wasn't followed through on. Um, they played lip service to it only. Um, and in terms of the second demand, net zero carbon by 2025, um, the government agreed to net zero carbon by 2050, which is a death sentence to many. Uh, it's far too late. Uh, there was nothing done about halting the loss of biodiversity. And the government is going to have a citizens' assembly, but it's not um, to the extent that Extinction Rebellion would like. It's not really going to have the power that we wanted it to. So um, it shows that the tactics work. It shows that civil disobedience, nonviolent direct action works, but we've still got a long way to go um, and we don't have time. So that means more action coming up. Yeah, more action will come till we get those demands passed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yes, we have power as citizens and, you know, we should take care in the decisions that we make. Um, but activism, nonviolent direct action, whatever action you can take to put pressure on government to get those demands through... Um, and to make ecocide a international crime as well. Um, that is where the power really lies. Uh, and I guess I've, I've been at a point where I've gone through huge lengths to live a zero waste lifestyle and you end up you know, walking ages to all sorts of different shops to buy all sorts of weird things. <laughs> and then I've realised that I have so much more power if I put all that energy towards Extinction Rebellion. So now if I have the choice in front of me, I will buy the thing that, you know, I'll, that um, has less waste, but I'm not agonising over it in the same way because we can just waste time. What we need, if we're really actually going to tackle this crisis, we need systemic change. Where, if I may, sort of rewinding a bit, yeah. to growing up um, and some of these values of which, we, uh, of which we've spoken and you know, values evolve as you know, our environments evolved and our our passions and beliefs evolve. You know, was there a moment when you were younger that you felt that this was a path that you wanted to follow? You know, in terms of your your childhood or your family. You know, was is there some sort of common threads that come from there? Uh, my mum has always been saying that I should be an activist and I was always a bit like, oh, shut up, from, mum. From what age? <laughs> I don't know. From, like, from being a teenager. Um, I grew up in Indonesia, so I guess I've seen... Um, you were born in Indonesia? I was born in Singapore. I'm Singaporean. Um, but it was just an emergency. And my mum got on a flight to Singapore and had me and came back to Indonesia after. Um, so, you know, I've grown up seeing rainforests. I've grown up seeing really amazing coral reefs. Um, it always really hits me when I think that, you know, if we reach 1.5 degrees of warming then we're going to see a 90% loss of coral reefs. And if we get to two degrees, it's almost complete annihilation. Um, and for some, a lot of people, that's quite an abstract idea. People are like, yes, so what, coral reefs? But for me, it feels really close to home. Um, coral reefs are just one of the most 
amazing things in the world. Yeah, that they are. <gasps> so yeah. how long were you in Indonesia? Um, my family still lived there. Um, I came to boarding school here when I was nine, uh, which then from nine to 18, I guess, is a really weird in-between of being here a lot of the time but not feeling like I live here or feel connected to the culture here. Like Indonesia really felt like my home till I was mm. 18. Brothers or sisters? Yeah, two brothers. Older? Yeah. I guess, you know, they're, they're always surfing. Well, they were always surfing. <laughs> so we've always been like, I feel like I've kind of half grown up in the sea um, and I've seen all the plastic pollution build up and you know I've seen places that I used to go to as a child being absolutely pristine and now you don't really want to dip your toes in the water um I've seen parts of the forest now become palm oil plantations um my brother that... worked in conservation my dad's been involved with conservation so how does that make you feel sad um maybe not even so much for myself but if you think like if I had a child then they wouldn't it's likely that they would not see any of the things that I grew up with yeah completely mm. how often do you go back well, I try not to fly. <laughs> that's, that's, so it gets a bit tricky. That's a long road so, to Indonesia. Um, yeah, I was going once a year since I left school. I went once a year and then uh, haven't been for three and a half years, but I'm actually going to go home for Christmas. <laughs> By what form of transport? I am going to fly, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but I do feel guilty Suitably about offset. it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess three and a half years, maybe that's kind of... I mean, you can't really justify it. I can't justify it, but I'm doing it. Understandable. Family is family. Yeah. It's talking about traveling over water, and we can't talk about this without talking about Greta. Yeah. Um, thoughts on Greta and what she's achieved in her 16 years of being on the planet so far? I mean, absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Um, she just says it like it is absolute clarity um and so important that she doesn't fly <laughs> yeah 100 percent. because i mean that's where consumer if we're talking about going back to consumer choices um there's the choice that you make but then there's how that echoes into the rest of society um and so by her doing that, it shows the leaders of the world that another way is possible. And, and it, it shows how serious the situation is. Yeah, yeah 100%. It's, you've got to treat it like an emergency. And it's, it's really that thing of, you know, when a fire alarm goes off, if everybody just sits there and ignores it, then everyone will look around and be like, okay, well, there's nothing to worry about. We're just going to sit here. Um, so it's the responsibility of some of us to go, guys, there's a fire and running out the room and, you know, really treating it as an emergency. And that's what Greta not flying, that's what that does. Mm. Um, but also that's what Extinction Rebellion does. Um, and yeah, so maybe, you know, that's how it links to consumer, like your individual choices do matter, but it's how they, um, echo and, um, how that becomes collective choice. Mm. Being a conduit for the change. Mm. Coming back to your mum. Yeah. And her observation of you being a young activist. Were there previous examples of your activism? I mean, where did that come from? Oh, I think I've just always been very um, stubborn and strong-minded. Um, Rebellious? 
Yeah, but in a very quiet way, just... <laughs> quiet rebellions. <laughs> um, I always had a sense that... Um, of uh, other species needing to be given the value that they deserve. I guess, you know, like having that, I didn't know what speciesism was, but I had a sense of it. Um, and I guess I just always did silly things like I decided my dog had a right to be on the sofa. So if my mum had friends over, and she's like, can you get the dog off the sofa? I'd be like, no, the dog has just as much right to be on the sofa as anybody else. <laughs> but it's just stupid things like that of like, this doesn't make sense in an adult world, but this is the way I think it is. It makes sense in Sarah's head. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Any more rebellious acts? Um, in school? In between? Um, I mean, I didn't talk for a year. Is that rebellious? You didn't? What age? Um, six. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because? Um, I didn't like my teacher at school. Okay. <laughs> How did that go down? Um, they said that my brain didn't function properly and they brought in lots of people to kind of examine me and say that I wasn't quite right in the head. Um, How did that feel? Wait, sorry, you didn't talk for a year full stop or didn't talk for a year at school? I didn't talk at school. I did talk at home. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I didn't talk much at all until I was like, I don't know, 18. Because you felt you didn't have anything to say or just because, because what? Uh, I think words are really important. They seem so definite. <laughs> um, so I just, I guess I just wanted words to be used in the right way. But that, at the age of six... I have a six-year-old daughter. Okay. And um, I'm just contemplating <laughs> sort of that happening um, because she doesn't stop stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, personalities and characteristics. But that's, I mean, yeah, that's incredible. I'm just trying to map out, again, in terms of some of your... You know, your childhood and which are formative years in terms of personality or you know direction you know physically in, in Indonesia and in a beautiful world you know, translocating to you know boarding school in the UK yeah that must have been a big big shift a big change yeah I mean had, had you been to the UK before then? I had been a couple of times before, but only in the summer. <laughs> oh. When it looked, like, bearable. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was cold. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have any idea what cold actually meant. Really? Understandable if you grew up in Indonesia. Like, cold to me was the aircon being on at 20 degrees. <laughs> So no experience of snow or no. just... Oh, no, I had seen snow. Um, my, most of my mum's family are in Australia. My grandparents lived in Tasmania, then Malaysian. Um, and so I saw snow once in Tasmania. Okay. <laughs> so a shock to the system, one could say. Yeah, but I think it was more... It was a cultural shock. Um, and then I, I kind of didn't talk much when I got here <laughs> again <laughs> um yeah it kind of felt to me I didn't really understand it as cultural shock because I mean unless well, you've you had a you change were, in culture nine, before say? yeah unless you've had a change in culture before you wouldn't know what that means so how would I define it as such 
Um, but I realise now it was as though I was speaking the same language as everybody else, but we weren't actually speaking the same language. Um, and so I was very misinterpreted. Very. And how did that make you feel? Yeah, it was just complete misfit. I actually don't really, like, I've never been the sort of person who needs to be popular. Um, yeah, I've never really, I've never cared about that. I guess that's that thing of, like, I just do what I feel is right to do. I don't really care if people like it or not. Mm. Um, but it's a difficult situation when uh, you find that the people of authority... Um, I mean, they're essentially bullies. The people of, of authority should be making sure that you're okay as a nine-year-old child who's just been gone across the world mm. to boarding school and is not British. <laughs> and yet they all had something against me just for being different. It must have been tough. I mean, I'm sure, you know, like a lot worse happens to people. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it again. I certainly wouldn't want to do it again. <laughs> but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, yeah. right? I mean, it's just, it's that thing of like just loads of rules that don't make any sense and people making up rules and that just because they feel like making up rules. Um... And pushing against the system. Yeah. Well, I was constantly having to push against the system, I guess. As you are now. Slightly different system. Yeah. Still pushing. Yeah. I see a constant, a, a continuity here. <laughs> and uh, what... I mean, bringing it back up to date. And I'm a huge advocate for Extinction Rebellion and what it's about and trying to achieve. And I guess from a more pragmatic viewpoint is, you know, what can, what can an individual do about it or what can a, you know... I run a small business, for example, and what what channels, what you know, what small things can people participate in? Obviously, in terms of attending and vocalizing and supporting. Um, but I don't know. It feels like there could and should be more. And you know, as we have here with a co-working space and event space, and actually, a good friend of mine is you know one of one of the key people, as far as I understand, with the Extinction Rebellion, they wanted to use the event space downstairs. I was like, sure, great. Like, if I can contribute in whichever way I can. Um, and again, it's just coming back to like practical, like this afternoon. Like, what else can we do, or how else can we think, or what can we change in terms of behavior? And, you know, one of the things that when we are talking to brands and businesses, we talk a lot about B Corp and, yeah. um, you know, both in terms of just a framework for any company to exist. It's phenomenal. You know, we are in the process of becoming a B Corp as a company. And, you know, the 328 questions or however many there is, many questions, even by just going through that process. And even if you can't answer it with a, you know, a big check, of like, yes, we are doing this. It's like, well, we're trying to do this or we're intending to do this. It, it has a forward-looking, you know, ambition to improve. And, you know, that bit I think is phenomenal. Um, but, you know, these are big things. Yeah. I mean, we're a small company and there's still big things. Just, I mean, there's easy things about our energy supply, which is all renewable and, you know, that's a relatively easy decision to make and an obvious decision. It's like, why haven't we done this sooner? But some of the softer things in terms of, you know, the purpose of your business and why are we here? 
above and beyond you know what we do and how we support small companies giving them space but to me it should be way more than that in terms of mobilization and you know facilitation and you know getting behind a purpose of you know what is going on to this world to this planet and I'm not sure there's a question there <laughs> more of a <laughs> A I'm, rambling <laughs> statement um, because it's something that I, you know, I'm going to say I struggle with. I do struggle yeah. with because you know, I've been running my company a long time and it's gone through various iterations based on, you know, obviously needs and, you know, having a family and, you know, personally. and um, But, you know, it's always been there in the back of like, and this is for many businesses it's like what is your purpose like what's your why and why are you here and what are you actually trying to do um and i think that is becoming louder and ever more louder than ever before um anyway it's more of a statement than anything else but i i share some of the anxiety and it is yeah. to me that's its manifestation this is an anxiety and you know there's an yeah. impact with you know continual anxiety around mental health and yeah hope and generationally what that's going to do to a younger generation coming through when there's like what like you guys left us with this it's like yeah. thanks and yeah. Yeah, I, we did a big piece of research around Gen Z, you know, globally. And I mean, it, I have hope that they are, their work ethic and their attitude and their ambition and their, you know, their education is, is, is driving, you know, the Gretas of this but world. we need it right now. <laughs> but we need it right now, exactly. We can't, it's too much pressure to say the hope lies with them. The hope lies with us. It, it lies with everybody. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I guess it's that th like I'm just thinking back during the rebellion. A friend of mine who had already been arrested twice in April, she said that you know she was going to get arrested again. I was like, you, you don't have to do that. You've done enough. And then we both said, yeah, but it's never enough because we've still got like a mountain to climb and we need it to happen now. Like we need net zero carbon by 2025 and we're now going into 2020. The UN Secretary General has said that carbon emissions need to, we need to see this turn happen in 2020, carbon emissions decreasing. Um, otherwise we're nowhere near on track. And, you know, we've got countries going in the other direction. Um, so we absolutely need... Extinction Rebellion's demands don't necessarily fix anything, but there's, there's hope that they can. So we absolutely need that to be passed by government, ASAP. We need it next year. We're done for. So it's that thing of, like, I know everyone's trying... And there's no blame of like, oh, you're not doing enough. But then, as you said, it's, you know, there's still so much more to be done and we really need the job to get done. Um, I don't know if you've read Jem Bendel's Deep Adaptation. It's an academic paper that, you know, most academic papers probably get downloaded like four times or something, but this has had like hundreds of thousands of downloads. Um, and Jem puts together um, the, the kind of science behind climate change and ecological collapse and the conclusion that he writes is that um, societal collapse is inevitable and soon, immense catastrophe very likely and extinction possible. Um, and off the back of this paper, he's um, created kind of forums to discuss deep adaptation, how we adapt, because so much is now inevitable. Um, and kind of also groups that deal with this grief. Um, 
so again I don't really know where I'm taking this but there's no really there's no like small thing you can do it would be nice to think that there was like some small thing that we can do we can do stuff right now but I think this is this is the time in history of the earth to do to make really bold moves and take huge risks um, because essentially nothing matters apart from what we're leaving the next generation and what we're leaving ourselves even. Um, yeah, it's, it's just about doing bold things. And, you know, next the next rebellion, we really should just have everyone go on strike and just sit go into central London and sit on the road and not get up until the government give us those demands because otherwise they're giving us a death sentence and we can't accept that. But, yeah, so I'd say, you know, if you have a business, I, I know my business is absolutely minute, but I put it on strike for two weeks. Um, and that's, that's what we need to get the job done. And the alternative is unbearable to think about. That it is. I think you've answered my penultimate question, <laughs> which is usually, you know, what can someone do or a tip or advice? And I think you've just articulated that incredibly well. So my final question would then be, who would you like to hear from on the show? Well, I guess we just talked about Jem Bandel. That's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, we will look up Jim. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Great. Sarah, this has been fantastic. Thank um, you. Incredibly informative. Uh, and I, 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 I'm not going to say I'm going to wish you luck because this is way more than an yeah. individual. I think we, we, it's incredibly motivating um, just to hear the passion on a cause that is so important. And uh, if anything, within our small world, we can try and make a difference. You know, it's our duty to, to respond and, you know, take some bigger risks and get on with something. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Sarah.